0: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead today on The Exchange. Do you stick with the commodities craze? Oil and metals are lower today. Oil having its worst month since August, but still up 16%. Uh, in recent weeks. We'll look at whether you should stick with the trade and get some of the best ideas for how. Also, Alaska Air returned to profitability last quarter as both business and leisure travel have been picking up. As we see rising fuel prices, we wonder if they'll hit the carrier next quarter. We will speak with Alaska Airlines CEO about that coming up. And shares of Crocs climbing today on a big earnings beat. I showed you my son loves his. The company's saying it has worked to minimize global supply chain disruptions despite temporary problems with its suppliers in Vietnam. CEO Andrew Reese will join me to discuss. But first, Stocks are kind of mixed today. After yesterday's record intraday highs for the Dow Jones Industrial Average, Christina Partsinevelis here with more of The Breakdown. Christina, That is right, Kelly. We've got a mixed bag today. This is after investors digest
1: earnings reports as well as labor data that we're getting right now. We are seeing the S&P 500 pretty much flat to the negative. Uh, Specifically with the S&P 500, it's the sixth positive session in a row. That was yesterday the longest winning streak since July. It also closed just one point of its record close. The Dow, though, is down about four-tenths of a percent. Right now, but it managed to close above its 200 day moving average yesterday. That's 321 straight sessions above that. And the Nasdaq, we can see up ever so slightly. Currently, though, there's no sector that is more than 10 percent from its 52 week high. Energy is the biggest lagger. we can see dragged down by Kinder Morgan and Halliburton. And then other sectors in the red, you got materials as well as financials dragging down the Dow. And then the winners, consumer discretionary as well as utilities. But I want to talk about cars. Following AutoNation's big beat and buyback program, car retailers are rallying across the board today. You've got Advanced Auto Parts, O'Reilly Auto, AutoZone, both trading at all-time highs. And yes, the computer chip shortage is bad for production, but the shortage helped pump up the bottom lines of these retailers. AutoZone up 2%, O'Reilly up over 2%. But let's start talking about Technology. We've got the Arc ETF trending 1.5 percent higher, led by names like Skills on Paceford's best day since August, after naming a former Amazon executive as its chief product a product officer. And then you've got Unity Software as well, and Tesla driving the ETF higher. Tesla is on its best on Pace for its best month since December. Jim Cramer was on earlier today and said he sees the stock going to a thousand bucks. The company. It's continually squeezing out more profit from each vehicle sold. You can see Tesla, 894, so definitely has a little bit more to go to 1,000.
0: Yeah, almost a $900 billion market cap now. Christina, thank you very much. Thanks. Now, while equities have been hovering near record highs, commodities have seen a divergence in performance. Copper on a monster run lately. It's up 30 percent this year and 11 percent in the past month alone. But silver and gold are negative on the year. Both of my next guests see opportunities in commodities, one in the assets themselves, the other in the miners, which have also lagged the market. Joining me now, Bryce Doty is a senior portfolio manager at SIT Investment Associates, and Michael Cagino is president and portfolio manager at the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds. So... Who wants the miners? Kogito?
2: Uh, With respect to industrial metals, the miners are where you'd want to be. With respect to precious metals and alternative currencies and hedge against uncertainty, inflation, etc., we would actually own sort of gold and silver directly, which we do. Got it. Um, and the reason for that is we want those non-correlative properties in the metal, which, you know, when you get a mining stock, it's a stock. It's a business. It pays dividends. It's had As a management team, it has to meet investor expectations versus the alternative currency where it's just the pure price of the metal which works. And we think long term, even though it's down here, it's been a consolidation this year, given the run of the year and a half before that. It's natural. It's building a base. And we think it's going to go higher long term with the creation of liquidity. Stimulus, um, monetary velocity, etc. In the next several years.
0: Yeah, people want uncorrelated until that means flattened up market. <laughs> That's what's been going on with silver and gold basically this That's year. Right. Bryce, Good it's time you. To buy it. Yeah, yeah, it can come in handy absolutely on the flip side of things. Um, Bryce, you like the SILJ among other things, but let's just start with why you like the junior silver miners here.
3: Well, we like uh, having both the the direct commodity as well as the actual miners. I mean, it, it just was pointed out that they do not act the same. Well, they really are based on different things. One is fundamental earnings management team and, and the profits that can go with it. But the underlying assets, the, the reserves are also still going to be valued based on whatever the, the underlying commodity has done. And SIL, SILJ... What's nice about that group of miners and that fund is it has overlap with gold as well. So it just helps you uh, be more diversified within the commodity space. But it's tough for us to not like virtually every aspect of commodities right now. You know, I, I know that won't last forever, but now's a good time. And SILJ is just going to be a nice uh, way to diversify and even out the ride in that commodity space.
0: For two guys who are very bullish on commodities right now, Bryce, I'll start with you. Why don't I see any crypto picks here?
3: You know, I I actually don't mind crypto. The uh,
0: I don't have a lot of clients that
3: would ever even consider it, frankly. But I believe the growth in digital everything is just going to increase, um, you know, a, a more traditional Strategy there to take advantage of digital transactions would be i pay as an ETF, <laughs> but uh, straight crypto is is something I think everyone should just have a little bit of just so they pay attention to what 's going on it 's not going away it 's just going to evolve over time to a point where some of the flaws that are embedded in Bitcoin will go away. There will be other types of cryptocurrencies and digital currencies that will improve upon the process. you know tether is one step. In that direction, but there's there's going to be multiple generations of improvement on that front, and you and you need to pay attention. You need to be there. Uh, so I I definitely uh, am uh, am a fan of that. I just don't have any customers that are really even consider it at this point.
0: Yeah, and I should note here that your other picks, you know, for people who say, okay, well, give me something outside of commodities or outside of crypto. You like the VALT conservative bond ETF. You like Hack the cybersecurity ETF and Away, and that's a travel tech ETF, obviously. So a couple of different plays there for the market. As you say, we're moving towards digital everything. Michael, what about you? I mean, again, we don't have to spend too much time on the crypto piece of this, but where do you see sort of um, risk assets performing, broadly speaking, kind of from here into year end?
2: Sure, Kelly. One point about commodities. We, We think that we're at the beginning stages of another's Multi-year commodity upcycle, given the lack of investment, given the come down from 2013, supply demand issues, global growth, et cetera. With respect to cryptos, we're not against it. We would say speculative portfolios, um, if you're willing to lose what you have or experience volatility, um, you know, it's it's an interesting place to be. But you need to know the risks as well as their potential rewards. Um, It's not tax efficient, but it's certainly a growing area, whether it's the currency values themselves or the uh, or the blockchain technology. We think that there's a lot of future in blockchain technology. Um, Crypto valuations, though, I mean, to me, it's a little bit uh, whether it's a bar of gold or a tulip. I'm not sure. There's no there's no sort of metrics you can value it on other than greater fool right now. And so as long as you know that going in, you know, that's fine. But but be prepared for volatility. I don't think they've proven themselves yeah. as non-correlative assets of equities or bonds at this point. There's not enough trading history. Um, but it's an interesting area that's growing with stock- respect to risk test. Yeah, of- I was
0: just say stock to flow is probably the way that you know those in the crypto space would say they're looking at the quote unquote fundamentals. But I also want to note that your picks here are First Republic Bank, KeyCorp, and the short-term Treasury. So quite obviously, it sounds like you do think that yields are going higher.
2: Well, yeah, we see more volatility interest rates and higher rates, frankly, over the next several years, not to mention inflation risk. So the financials would be an area that we think will take advantage of this situation. And, uh, you know, in that area, the stocks you named, we all own them. Um, a couple of regional banks uh, with First Republic and, and Key Corp. First Republic uh, being a little bit more expensive, I'd buy it on a dip. Mm-hmm. Um, Key Corp, you know, mid- Midwest regional, uh, a lot of different operations, Morgan Stanley, big cap. Involved in all areas of finance and State Street, a, a custodial bank in this environment, we think is good. All these have pricing power. All of them can manage their cost structures. They've got strong balance sheets. They've got good dividends in excess of a 10 year yield and likely growing. Um, and uh, they you know, we think they're good long term total return investments as a sector in the stock market. That's below the value of the overall market right now.
0: Well, and there we see the 10-year Treasury, 1.67 percent. So it really has come up substantially this year and even over the past month or so. Guys, thank you very much. Kind of a comprehensive view of things right now. Bryce Doty and Michael Cucino. Now to WeWork, which has finally gone public. The shares popping on their debut via SPAC today. Uh, let's see. They're up about 8 percent. And this is two years after the failed IPO, of course. Their current CEO, Sandeep Bathrani, sat down with Andrew Ross Sorkin outside of the New York Stock Exchange earlier today to explain how the pandemic has helped accelerate global. Growth, including the launch of an all-access card, allowing users to work from any WeWork in the world.
4: Pandemic allowed two things to happen. One, it's all about flexibility. No one wants long-term leases. No one wants, everyone wants a turnkey project. That's one end. Second is we built the all-access card, which could never have happened if it wasn't for the pandemic, where people, you know, the ultimate of flexibility come as you want, when you want. And the third leg is who would have thought that WeWork could actually sell software? You know, 18 months ago, if you told me that we work could sell software, I would have said no. But the pandemic allowed our core business, which is to sell a desk, sell an office, sell a conference room. Um, you know, we were able to take and white label what we do for a living.
0: Joining me now to discuss is Joel Steinhouse. He's the former WeWork head of strategic initiatives and now the CEO of hybrid work company Daybase. Joel, welcome. Is this a bittersweet Thanks, day for Kelly. you? <laughs>
5: Well, listen. No, it's it, it's a it's a great day. I mean, I think that this is a, a, a real testament to what the future is going to hold, which is all about flexibility. And I think that you know, if if a company wants to succeed in a post pandemic world, they're going to have to think about what's demanded from their talent and and what the talent expects. And so, I think that companies that offer uh, flexibility in this marketplace uh, are really well positioned for the future.
0: You know, we've been talking about SPACs being kind of a challenged investment vehicle. Um, there's there's been evolution. You know, maybe the the generation coming to market now are not the same that they were six or twelve months ago. But for sort of casual observers who ask you, since you worked at the company, whether WeWork now would be a good investment, kind of to Sandeep's point about software and the rest of it, what what are your thoughts on on WeWork today?
5: Yeah, I think that when you evaluate WeWork and other co-working companies. You have to think about it in two ways. You have to think about what market they're playing in. And then the second thing is you do have to think about the value proposition at the end of the day. And the market they're playing is is enormous. I mean, it's a giant market, which we're, we're talking about the future of work. We're talking about workplace. We're talking about, frankly, the wear of work. And all of those things have been reevaluated as part of the pandemic. And then the value proposition being primarily about flexibility, we think is a really compelling value proposition. What I would say is, and what we're trying to do is, there's a need for another place. That's what we're creating. Mm -hmm. And we think that the future is an ecosystem approach. So you will have a hub space that you use and consume in a very different way, hopefully a more efficient way. And then you'll have spokes. And that's what we're building out is a a network of spokes. So we really think that there's going to be an ecosystem approach that companies take going forward.
0: You know, we looked at some WeWork and and co-sharing, I think Serendipity was a regional one. Um, They were very expensive. And I wonder if the future of flex workspaces is actually to be able to use that corporate card, (laughs) Joel, and expense it. You know, as companies shift from having everybody in-house to maybe paying for those seats to be in a space like yours, do you think that they could become a bigger share of your client mix over time instead of, you know, workers themselves?
5: Yeah, we, we do. I mean, we think about it in two ways. We think about we want to serve the individual user and really solve for the pain points of working from home that were surfaced from the pandemic. We also want to perpetuate some of the benefits that were surfaced. I mean, people have talked about not wanting to commute five days a week. And I think that a future where you're not commuting five days a week means you're going to need another place to go. I think that over time, what companies will do is they will evaluate their real estate portfolios. They'll try to figure out ways to, to save because what we've been doing has been entirely inefficient relative to people you know, thinking about real estate as really a warehouse for employees as opposed to thinking about it relative to what are the tools that my people need to do their various jobs? And you get to a much more engaged employee population, if you think about it that way. You also get to better outcomes from a business perspective. You get to more efficient outcomes.
0: So finally, where do you see competition going? Obviously, you have your company now. WeWork itself is still out there. There's a flurry of others. Um, Is there going to be a race to the bottom in terms of cost, or is it going to come down to kind of who has the real estate advantage? And what do you think your advantage is from a business model point of view over time?
5: I think in all real estate, what's happening is you're you're going to need to have um, a differentiator that's based in service and based in experience, and so that's that's how we've oriented ourselves. That's how I think that a lot of um, operators are oriented themselves in traditional office environments. so our our differentiator is going to be having an amazing experience being consumable completely on demand uh, close to home where close to where people live, which is a, a huge need and a huge gap that was surfaced by the by the pandemic.
0: Yeah, well, there's a lot of people desperate to get out of their house right now, or they're being kicked (laughs) out by their spouse. No comment. Joel, (laughs) we really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Kelly. Joel Steinhouse is the CEO of Daybase, and I should note we work as a four-time CNBC Disruptor 50 company. They reached number three on the 2019 list, and our Disruptor 50 virtual summit featuring Robinhood's Vlad Tenev and Peloton co-founder Tom Cortez is at 2 p.m. today. There's still time to register. Actually, in the next couple of minutes, go over to CNBCevents.com/disruptor50summit and say hi to Tyler for me. We're just getting started here today. We are still talking carriers, Crocs, and crypto. The CEO of Alaska Air Group, which just turned a profit for the first time in six quarters, will join me a little bit later on. And we'll also speak to the CEO of Crocs, with the shoemaker stock surging on the back of an earnings beat and guidance raise. Bitcoin is also moving lower today, but crypto exchange FTX announcing a new so-called meme round of fundraising at an eye-popping valuation. We've got all the details coming up. Welcome back to the exchange. Shares of Alaska Air are slightly lower today after posting better than expected results this morning. They're coming off a 45 percent gain over the past year as passenger traffic has more than tripled. But with fuel costs on the rise and COVID cases still rising in parts of the world, will the gains be harder to come by from here? Joining us now for an exchange exclusive is Alaska Air CEO Ben Minacucci, along with our very own Phil LeBeau. Phil?
6: Kelly, thank you very much. Ben, thanks for joining us today from the Alaska Airlines headquarters out in seattle hey i'm curious about something you guys posted a profit for the third quarter at a time when a lot of your competitors are still posting losses what was the key to profitability in your opinion
7: well thanks phil yeah it was just a great quarter 12 percent pre-tax margin you know our first profit in, uh, since the pandemic began i just want to start by thanking just the amazing employees at alaska they've worked through this pandemic and now we're celebrating a great success uh you know, some of the key, uh, you know, strategies were how we deploy capacity. You know, we had a very measured approach, a very disciplined approach, and we only brought back 80% of our capacity. That allowed us to match supply and demand, but also, you know, uh, allowed us to execute our operation in a very good way. So we had, you know, top performance, and, uh, you know, we were in top near the top of the industry for operational performance in terms of on-time arrivals and completion rates. So, you know, that's that's a huge key to it.
6: Ben, you have huge exposure to alaska hence the name alaska airlines and you also have huge exposure to california basically up and down that coast alaska is getting hit by covid19 a surge in cases up there california has the mask mandates which has for some people down there said look tourism is not where it should be how are you managing those two areas and how much is that weighing on your business
7: you know so far what we're seeing is you know some impact of course the delta variant has weighed on on our results uh you know, pretty much for September, we're seeing some impact in October, but we're seeing we're starting to see a shift here. Uh, you know, right now in the last two weeks, we're seeing bookings strengthen. You know, in fact, what we said for the fourth quarter Phil, is that we we, we hope to be break even to slightly positive. You know, as we uh, as we end the quarter, so we're starting to see some we're starting to see this delta variant get into the, the rearview mirror, and we're starting to see some some positive traction.
6: Ben, are you concerned about staffing shortages? And I bring this up because the Wichita airport said that you guys were cutting back some of your flights from there and they cited labor shortages. And frankly, this is an industry that when it comes to pilots and when it comes to certain areas, uh, staffing can be a little bit tight, especially when you have the vaccine mandates coming in. Where, what are you sitting at in terms of uh, staffing and are you any, do you have any concerns there?
7: No, you know we're in a good position now with staffing. You know, like I said, I think one of the keys was how we deploy capacity. We're we're reintroducing uh, capacity as a measured rate, so we're at 80% now. We'll be at 100% by next summer. So staffing right now is good. You know, we're we're hiring. We're getting people into into the door. Uh, we're hiring 600 pilots next year, 800 flight attendants, 130 mechanics, over 1,100 airport workers. So. Uh, so far, you know, we're, we're not having trouble attracting folks uh, into the door. So I feel good about our staffing numbers. Uh, but, you know, it, it is a challenge, especially at the entry level uh, uh, market, entry level labor market in a place like Seattle. But so far, so good. We're making we're making some traction.
0: Then it's Kelly here. If I could just ask how you're managing jet fuel costs, especially the volatility that we might see. And do you have any hedging strategies for that that could maybe benefit or cause some concern? Yeah.
7: Kelly, great question. You know, like so, nobody likes paying more for gas, and uh, you know whether you're pumping it into your car or in this beautiful seven thirty-seven Max that's behind me, uh, the cost of fuel is a is a huge drag. So quarter to quarter, we're seeing about a thirty cent increase in the in the price of a uh, price of fuel per gallon, and for us, that that amounts to about fifty million dollars, and so that's a huge impact to the bottom line. So in terms of fuel hedging, you know we're fifty percent hedged uh, on our fuel, so that's going to take the sting out of sting out of fuel. Uh, You know, but it's still still a drag, and uh, unfortunately, it's going to mean, you know, a lot of higher ticket prices for consumers.
6: Ben, that was going to be my question. We talked to Scott Kirby at United yesterday. He said, look, higher jet fuel prices will mean higher ticket prices. How much do you expect, percentage-wise, your ticket prices to go up, either in the fourth quarter or into the first quarter?
7: You know, it's hard to say, Phil. You know, like... You know the the Alaska mindset is always to have a low cost, low fare, uh, you know, mentality. So I, again, we want to make sure that we keep fares competitive, uh, and we'll see how fuel, uh, you know, transpires here over the next quarter. So hard to say. Uh, you know, our goal is to bring people on our airplanes and give them a competitive fare, and, and we'll try and manage our way through this uh, through this fuel uh, fuel spike.
6: But you do expect some t- increase in ticket prices, correct?
7: Yeah, of course. Yeah, you know what? Again, we'll, we'll try and contain it as much as we can with our fuel hedging, but there's going to be some incremental increase in ticket prices because of the cost of fuel, for sure.
6: Ben Minicucci, the CEO of Alaska Airlines, joining us today from the company's headquarters uh, in Seattle. Ben, thank you very much. And, yes, he is in front of a brand-new Boeing 737 MAX. Kelly, I'll send it back to you on a day with a lot of airline earning reports. Alaska stands out as the one that posts a profit. Back Ab- to you.
0: Absolutely. No, that point is very well taken, Phil. Thank you uh, if, as well. Our Phil Abo joining us with the CEO of Alaska Air this afternoon. Coming up, Crocs on pace for its best day since July after crushing results. We'll dig into how they're able to avoid supply chain problems holding back other companies. And the Crane Shares China Internet ETF, the K-Web, is on pace for its third straight weekly gain and best month since January. Is it clear sailing from here now? We'll explore that. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Dow's down 120 points. We're about 40 points off the session low right now, down a third of 1%. But look at this sort of a mirror image here. While that's down about a third of a percent, the Nasdaq is up by that amount, and the S&P is pretty much bang on flat at 45.35. Here are some of the movers this hour. No pandemic hangover for tractor supply yet. Shares are on pace for their best day since February. They're up Four and a, almost 5% right now, and they're uh, tracking above their all-time closing high after posting an earnings beat and raise. This also marks their sixth straight quarter of more than 10% growth in comp store sales, uh, up 215%, so more than tripling since the pandemic low. Just an incredible run for TSCO. Another debut we're watching today, in addition to WeWork, is Portillo's. It's a popular Chicago-based hot dog chain, jumping 55% after already pricing at $20 a share on the top end of its target range, Today's move makes us a more than $2 billion company. Not bad for a restaurant that started selling hot dogs from a trailer back in 1963. And sticking with food... Check out shares of Krispy Kreme. This one's been such a tough story, down 4.5% today after HSBC downgraded the stock to hold. The firm slashing its price target to 14 from 25. We're currently at 1330. They noted the structure of this IPO appears to be one of the things holding the stock back. Krispy shares down 36% since going public in July and are on pace for their eighth straight week of, mo- of losses. For more on that call, you can head over to CNBC.com slash pro. Now to Christina Evelis for a CNBC news update. Gina?
1: Thank you, Kelly. Here's our CNBC News update at this hour. Former Minneapolis police officer Muhammad Noor sentenced to nearly five years in prison for the 2017 shooting death of Justine Ruschek. Noor fatally shot the unarmed woman after she called 911 to report a possible rape happening behind her home. He was resentenced today on a second-degree manslaughter charge after his murder conviction was overturned. On the news, the House votes on finding Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress. Will Republicans vote against Bannon? And what happens next if the vote succeeds? That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Moscow will bring back COVID-19 lockdown measures beginning next week as coronavirus infections and deaths continue to soar. Schools, gyms and restaurants will close beginning October 28th for 11 days. Supermarkets and pharmacies can remain open. And the world's biggest triceratops skeleton, known as Big John, sold for $7.7 million today at an auction in Paris. This skeleton gets its name from the owner of the land in South Dakota where it was found and is estimated to be over 66 million years old. Big John measures 23 feet long and stands
0: 8 feet high at the hips. Kelly, back to you. I love it. (laughs) <laughs> Christina, thank it's you good very story. much Christina Evelis. Bitcoin is lowered today after hitting highs not seen since May earlier this week Ether is trading at an all-time high of its own near $4,100 Up next, FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried joins me to discuss these moves and the company's meme fundraising round that was just completed We're back in a minute Welcome back to the exchange. Bitcoin dropping today, but it's still up more than 10% over the past week. And its move to fresh highs is coming amid new disclosures that show the crypto industry has been ramping up lobbying spend. Eamon Javers has the numbers.
8: Hi, Kelly. The new numbers are in, and you can see that the crypto industry is responding to all this discussion of new crypto regulation by stepping up its lobbying spending here in the nation's capital. Take a look at the crypto exchange Coinbase. They re-registered to lobby in September and had terminated their lobbying registration earlier in the year. Now they're back. They've added staffers and spent $625,000 in the third quarter. That's up from nothing in the second quarter. The crypto exchange also hired outside lobbyists, including Franklin Square Group, Steptoe and Johnson and Tiger Hill Partners, a spokesman for the company told CNBC, quote, "Our public policy presence in Washington D.C. is growing to meet the moment and to represent their views in critical regulatory debates." We also see a trade association for the crypto industry, the Blockchain Association, spending $210,000 in the third quarter, and that's up from $160,000 last quarter. Among the issues the Trade Association says it's lobbying on are a variety of bills focused on digital tokens and currency, as well as broader measures like the Defense Authorization Act and the Infrastructure Bill, which could have a lot of little line items that impact the cryptocurrency industry. Kelly?
0: All right, Amon. thank you very much. And while the crypto industry is pouring money into lobbying, investors keep pouring money into the industry. Crypto platform FTX announcing the closure of an almost $421 million Series B1 funding round. It boosts their total valuation to $25 billion. FTX has seen its user base jump 48% in just the past three months. Joining me to discuss is FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried. Sam, it's great to have you. How much of this money is going to go towards, you know, Ump's uh, uniforms and, you know, more stadiums? I mean, you guys are everywhere. What is this capital for?
9: Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, the honest truth is I'm, I'm really excited about the various endorsements and partnerships we've made. Um, oh. But all of those together are things that are way less than our sort of net profit outside of that. So all of the advertising, all of the endorsements are things that, that we could meet just with our normal business operations. We're in a really fortunate place to be able to be, you know, quickly growing company, which is already uh, strongly net sort of positive cash flow. Um, The biggest use of of the investment proceeds is more likely to be uh, acquisitions and investments. We've already done a few. Obviously, we you know acquired Blockfolio last year, uh, LedgerX a few months ago, and there are a number more that we're looking at.
0: What about so we're showing some of your all star uh, spokespeople, if we want to call them that. I, I have to hand it to you for the Tom Brady and Giselle commercial, which I thought was pretty clever. Um, Thank how you. much more is going to go into that kind of high profile celebrity endorsement?
9: Yeah, you know, I think we might do a bit more. I think that we're sort of like nearing the end of of, of ramping that up, at least for now. Um, obviously, we'll have to see what happens. And, you know, because our targets here Are to form partnerships that we are really excited by and that we hope our users will be really excited by too. It's really dependent on exactly who we can, you know, work something out with. So there's a fair bit of uncertainty about exactly how many we'll do. Um, it, It is just super dependent on the details, but you know, I would guess there will be a few more.
0: So let me turn now to the sort of the FTX platform itself. And, you know, if you guys were to enter another stress test, we spoke with Caitlin Long earlier in the week, who is warning that Bitcoin often has drawdowns of, on average, like 68 percent. You throw in leverage in the system and, you know, she's kind of hinting, couldn't be out of the question. What if it falls 75 percent? And that kind of stress test. And granted, we went through a 50 percent drawdown earlier this year. Would your platform be able to sort of meet the sudden rush for the exits? How much of this capital that you're raising goes into kind of shoring up that structure? And what would you tell any investors, buyers, traders who might be nervous about that?
9: Totally. So, you know, first of all, none of this is investment advice. And none of this is meant to be a statement about whether crypto will go up or down and, you know, whether you should be buying or selling or anything like that. Um, But in terms of like the platform functionality and safety you know, this will give us a bigger insurance, and it'll give us, you know, a bigger backstop. Um, but it's also the case that we've never had a day in our history where, uh, you know, the uh, where the payouts from that were greater than our revenue from the day. And that includes days where we've seen, you know, 25, 30% drawdowns and weeks where we've seen 50% drawdowns. So we've thought for a long time about exactly how to design our risk engine, our merchant call engine. Um, we've iterated over time. And we've built systems that have done pretty well, all things considered, during large market moves. Before, we've never clawed back. We never anticipate buying back. Uh, that that's not how we work. And uh, I, and you know overall, we've been able to keep uptime, keep liquid markets, um, and, uh, and 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 you know keep the risk engine functioning properly even during large market movements. Again, that's not to say there will or won't be large market movements, but from the perspective of the platform we feel pretty good about how we are going into it.
0: So where are we in terms of your platform and its success? So we, we've seen this big move by the SEC to tacitly allow Bitcoin futures to start trading. Yep. What is the status of FTX for people in the U.S. who want to use the platform? And what do you think this now means for the scope of U.S. kind of regulation, if we want to call it that, of the crypto industry over the next six to 12 months?
9: It's a huge step forward. And I think one thing that is really cool about it is that the SEC for a while has been signaling what would need to happen for them to get comfortable with the Bitcoin ETF. And this is very much in line with it, right? All of the rejection notices that they sent were, you know, many of them were combined with color about, look, our biggest concern is the regulation of the markets, of the venues that these Bitcoins would be trading on, right? Especially anti-market manipulation regulation. And, um, you know, the, uh, the the Bitcoin ETFs that we're seeing right now on our regulated futures platform. Um, I think that we're going to see more and more structured products with cryptocurrencies and them popping up that draw on regulated platforms. Um, we're excited to join that, frankly, with, you know, we've acquired Drex, which is a CFTC licensed platform earlier this year. Um, I also think that we may see spot cryptocurrency exchanges, uh, you know, enter a new regulatory framework sometime over the next few years to be determined what that looks like. Um, but I, I would not be surprised to see more regulation of the markets and exchanges, especially on the anti-market manipulation, yeah. um, you know, healthy market side.
0: And you have a legions of quotes here. I mean, your investors are not just big venture capital firms. You also have the teachers uh, innovation platform. You have, you know, sort of, Pension type funds and institutional investors, and the traditional venture capital here, all looking at what they think is kind of the future of the financial system that you're that you're working on. They believe you're in the Bahamas speaking with me now. Would you ever move your headquarters to the U.S.?
9: So we do have a U.S. headquarters for U.S. business. Um, it you know right now Chicago is our, our largest office. So we also have some in, in Miami um, and and a few other places. Um, you know, in terms of of you know what is sort of the relative uh, you know activity of those two venues. Today, there's way more volume that trades on the international platform than on the U.S. platform. Um, it's probably a factor of 30 or so different. Um, I'm really optimistic that we may be able to grow our U.S. footprint by by quite a large amount over the next few years. And you know, what are the things that are going to lead to that? Um, it's all licensing and regulatory. Um, at least that's a long part of that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that that again, we see LedgerX as a big piece of that. We're excited to work with the CFTC, excited to work with the SEC, um, and with other regulators um, to figure out how we can have you know fully regulated and licensed market activity in the United States, which is able to mirror the sort of uh, you know combination of futures, you know, spot and collateralization uh, that really makes the capital efficiency of yeah. the platform work.
0: Exactly, exactly. Sam, great to have you today. Congrats, and uh, please keep us posted. We appreciate it.
9: Of course. Thank you.
0: Sam Bankman-Fried of FTX. Coming up, this freight name has climbed 16% over the past month, is up 34% from its 52-week low. We'll reveal it and tell you what the CEO said about inflation next. And as we head to break, take a look at shares of Digital World Acquisition Corp., soaring 335% after the company announced a plan to merge with Donald Trump's Trump Media and Technology Group. They plan to launch a social media platform called Truth Social, backed by none other than the former president himself. The venture is valued at $875 million, including debt. And the deal is still pending shareholder approval. Again, DWAC trading at almost $45 a share right now. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Let's do a little show and tell. Shares of Union Pacific are up slightly on better than expected earnings. But the company seeing a big jump in their fuel costs. CEO Lance Fritz telling Squawk on the street they're able to deal with that, at least for now.
2: We're seeing inflation in, in purchase services for sure, right? Whether it's commodity-driven or labor-driven, uh, we, we are seeing the pressure. Right now, it's manageable. You mentioned uh, fuel price increases. We offset that with fuel surcharges into the marketplace, and those are broadly accepted in the, in the transportation industry. But, but you're right, there, there is real pressure on prices uh, inbound. And uh, it, some of that might be transitory, some of it looks like it might be structural.
0: Sounds like they're mostly managing it by passing it along. Jim Kramer says the stock is poised for a breakout thanks to strong management and the global economic recovery. If you want to read Jim's whole take, sign up for the CNBC Investing Club newsletter at cnbc.com slash investing club, or by pointing your phone's camera at that QR code on the screen. Coming up, a new CNBC survey showing supply and labor shortages are now getting the attention of both Wall Street and Main Street those results next. Welcome back. CNBC's latest All-America Economic Survey has found it's not just businesses noticing the supply and labor shortages. It's really starting to hit home. Steve Leesman is here with the numbers. Steve?
10: Kelly, thanks. At the stores on the shelves and at the cash registers, Americans are feeling the supply and labor shortages plaguing businesses that we've been talking about uh, 24-7 here. Sixty-six percent of our 800 respondents nationwide say they've noticed stores closed at odd hours or in odd days when they normally would be open. Sixty percent report difficulty finding certain goods. And these are everyday items, not obscure purchases. Among the items that volunteered by our respondents are food and grocery items, paper products like toilet paper and paper towel and cleaning supplies. These results, among the first attempts to see if these supply shortages are indeed affecting average Americans, they cut across party lines with very modest differences among Democrats, Republicans, and independents. Another place where they agree, concern about inflation. The cost of living has now rocketed to the top of the list of concerns of average Americans, up 16 points from the last quarter, and tied now with COVID. And while they differ sharply on the importance of almost every other issue— and equal, 38% of Democrats and Republicans pick inflation as their top concern. The results, 84% of Americans now believe prices will increase in the next year, the highest level in our survey since 2011. Large percentages see high prices now for gasoline, groceries, electronics, and clothing. And as we reported earlier, Kelly, that's depressed the overall outlook for the economy and President Biden's approval ratings.
0: Yeah, maybe the wrong kind of inflation expectations. Steve, thank you. Really telling results. Our Steve Leisman with the latest there. Let's kind of stick with the theme. Crocs just crushed third-quarter earnings estimates, hiked its outlook for the year, and announced a $150 million buyback. But all of these other retailers have been struggling with global supply chain issues. Crocs has largely been able to avoid disruption despite shutdowns at facilities in Vietnam by shifting their production and distribution strategies. Investors like what they hear. The shares are up more than 8% today, and they have more than doubled so far this year, up 130%. Joining me now is Crocs CEO Andrew Reese. Andrew, it's great to have you back. And what would you say? I mean, listen, we saw Nike. Everybody struggles with these Vietnam uh, you know, shutdowns. You guys experienced that. What did you do?
11: Yeah, I, look, it's impacting everybody. It's impacting the footwear industry, the apparel industry, et cetera. Tremendous concentration of, uh, of production in southern Vietnam. Um, I would say the good news is the factories are reopening. Um, as of today, the majority of our factories are, are open. But there was a period of weeks there where that production was was absent. So, you know, we did, you know, generally what people would expect us to do. So we shifted production to China, to uh, Indonesia, to uh, also a little bit to Bosnia um, for our European business. Um, we We cut our line a little bit. So we narrowed our SKU base so that our productivity in the factories as they ramp back up will be much better when we'll be able to catch up. And we're also using pretty extensive air freight in the first quarter of next year to accelerate the delivery of those goods, both here in the United States and also to EMEA. So it's a lot of work and it's a lot of investment. But I would say, you know, our teams are really good at this and we've been able to, you know, combat this headwind very well.
0: So let me reiterate that. So in part, you shifted production back to China, which is interesting, uh, but also to Bosnia, Indonesia, like you said. Uh, Fewer products in the offering, so you can kind of simplify things and bounce back more quickly. Uh, And I thought it was really interesting that you mentioned you've been using airplanes to deliver. It's the same thing that we heard from Signet Jewelers. They've been able to avoid supply chain snarls by using planes instead of ships. Crocs are probably as light, if not lighter, than jewelry. (laughs) So you guys are are uniquely uh, able to do that. Um, So does that mean that you basically were able to sell all of the product that people wanted to buy or did you still have to forego some sales?
11: No, we, we've foregone some sales, right? So even if not so much in third quarter, really the third quarter that we just announced was mostly impacted by just delays in shipment. If you think about transit times from Asia, they've gone from 30 to 40 days to over a hundred days, right? So that's what's impacted us historically. As we look forward, we are definitely foregoing some sales, right? So we've definitely taken orders or we'd have demand from our wholesale partners or we can see demand in our DTC channels that we know we're not going to be able to fulfill. You know, we've built that into the, um, to the estimates that we provided to to the investment community. So we think we've captured that, um, but there is tremendous uncertainty. But absent all of these issues, we would even have a better results for sure.
0: How would you describe the demand from the U.S. consumer? We had kind of a troubling survey yesterday where it was from Deloitte. They said, you know, high income consumers are going to spend 15 percent more, low income consumers, 22 percent less. I would imagine you guys are going to benefit from discretionary. I look behind you. These are fun, popular, fashionable items. Uh, It would seem like this would be a good holiday season for you. But I could just offer a comment on kind of the scope of your sales to the U.S. and how that stacks up with the rest of the world.
11: Yeah, so um, the, the U.S. business has been very strong for us. I mean, we've really benefited over a three-year period from rising brand heat. You know, a lot of what I have behind me are the collaborations we've been doing with brands and and uh, and celebrities, etc. And that really drives a lot of attention for the brand and builds the brand heat. That has resonated very strongly in the U.S. We've been able to grow our U.S. business, you know, for very strongly for three consecutive years. And absolutely, we have a very democratic consumer base. We have low-end consumers, high-end consumers, and we see, you know, very strong traction across the board. So the U.S. consumer, I think, is generally feeling uh, very buoyant. Um, the stimulus that has now subsided was a, was an important factor through the summer. Obviously, that's a little bit less to date. Um, but I think if you've got a brand that's in demand, and frankly, you also sell at a very uh, approachable price point, the majority of our products are around fifty dollars and below, uh, and the consumer finds it exciting and interesting and wants it. they can afford it and they 're buying it.
0: yeah, and in all seriousness, they are great for toddlers because it 's really hard to get kids' shoes on. A final question, <laughs> you guys are looking to make some supply chain changes, some shoe changes in order to comply with net zero initiatives. Um, do, you know these are something that people fear is going to kind of further raise costs, hurt the supply chain could Is this going to be a net positive for your company?
11: Absolutely. We wouldn't be doing it if we didn't think it was a net positive. It's absolutely the right thing to do uh, for the world in which we live, but we're also doing it because we think it's a good thing for our company. We think the traction that it gives us with uh, the consumer, particularly the younger consumer, far outweighs the uh, potential cost. There will be a cost increase over time. You know How we're doing this is we're blending the uh, sustainably sourced material um, into our production. So over time, Percentage of sustainably sourced material will grow, and that will allow us to achieve net zero by uh, by by uh, 2030. So we're super excited by that. But it gives us traction with the consumer. It does drive cost. Uh, we think that overall economic equation is beneficial to shareholders.
0: And you maybe get that ESG uh, stamp of approval uh, these days as well. Andrew, thanks so much Absolutely. for your time. We appreciate it. Just fun to see that display behind you as well. So, makes me want to put on some pom pom crocs. (laughs) Andrew Reese from Crocs, whose shares are up nearly 10% now on the session. Still ahead, Chinese tech stocks are posting big gains over the past month. Alibaba's jumped 17%. Is it too late to get in? We'll discuss that next. Welcome back. Chinese tech stocks are staging a monster rally after getting crushed earlier this year amid government crackdowns. Seema Modi has a check on those valuations and whether there's room to run. Seema?
4: Yeah, Kelly, just a stunning rebound. The KWeb ETF now tracking for its best month since June of 2020. The turnaround in Chinese tech stocks, though, uh, putting the spotlight on valuations. Morgan Stanley reiterating its outperform rating on Pinduoduo, saying the market might have over-penalized the stock on concerns about an unfavorable regulatory environment, adding that its improving profitability picture makes its valuation look more attractive. Now, other Chinese tech names like Baidu, Alibaba, JD.com have seen their stock prices jump around 20% this month, but are still trading at a discount to their historical averages. Alibaba now at 21 times earnings, which is lower than its five-year average of 28 times, Valuation, of course, is only one part of an investment thesis. The question around what Chinese regulators could do next, that remains unanswered, right? But what you are seeing is analysts, including those at Benchmark, saying that policy changes are conducive to Some companies' business models, like Baidu, if you look at the investments Baidu is making, it's in line with where the Chinese government sees opportunity. One example of that is artificial intelligence. There's also a report earlier this week that China is considering uh, making more data available to search engines, which they say, could bode well for a company like Baidu. I think in general, Kelly, you're just seeing after this big pullback, more investors coming in, trying to sift through the carnage, right, and find those gems. Absolutely,
0: especially after Charlie Munger piled in. Seema, thank you very much, Seema Modi. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.